Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm Kurt Parker. Welcome. If it's your first time, we're glad that you're here. If you're a student just getting back into town, back into church, glad that you're here with us. We can encourage you, bless you in any way, help you, let us know. It'd be our joy to do that. If you're new, of course, you're probably wondering what we're going to study. Well, we're in a continued study through First, Second Timothy, and Titus. Don't worry, we'll get you caught up today and you'll be right with us. Anytime we open the Word of God, it's going to be beneficial. And I hope this week you've been in the Word each day. Make it your point, your, your desire, and your goal to be in the Word of God each day. You were made for it. It was made for you to instruct you, encourage you, to hold the Holy Standard up before you, to bless you, let you know what the Lord thinks about things. She might be mature, lacking nothing, thoroughly furnished for every good work. If you don't know how to do that, it'd be our uh, delight to help you with that. The version has a number of, of uh, calendars that can take you through the Word of God in a year, and we also have some, uh, some printed stuff back in the back in the foyer that can help you with that. Now, if you would, let's turn together in our verse-by-verse study. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4, 1 Timothy, and verse 11. We've entitled the study, Guidelines for Public Worship, Pursuing Godliness, and this, in particular, success from God's perspective as we pick up in verse 11. Let's read together, starting in verse 11, down through verse 16. Paul says to Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example, those who believe. Until I come again, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In a brief and simple but really expressive eulogy, by Martin Luther at the funeral of a pastor named Nicholas Hausman. Luther said, quote, what we preach, he lived, end quote. By the time of Hudson Taylor's death in 1905, China Inland Mission was an international body with 825 missionaries living in all 18 provinces of China more than 300 stations of work, more than 500 local Chinese helpers, more than 25,000 Christian converts. Years after his death, the government of China commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor with the purpose of distorting the facts and presenting him in a very bad light. They wanted to discredit the name of this consecrated missionary of the gospel, but as the author was doing his research, he was increasingly impressed by, uh, by Taylor's character and his godly life, and he found it extremely difficult to carry out his assigned task with a clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of losing his life, he laid aside his pen, renounced his atheism, and professed Jesus as his savior. I know it's not surprising to you that your example and my example leave an impression on other people. Exactly what that impression is, the question, right? And this is precisely Paul's admonition to Timothy here starting in verse 11. Now, over the past several weeks, we have seen the Apostle Paul lay some very simple principles out for us concerning the pursuit of godliness and those things that will mark the faithful servant of Jesus Christ and indicate a success from God's perspective. We've seen that they are things that everyone can understand. Uh, very, very simply, from the early part of chapter 4, when you're discerning and you understand error, you have to warn others about it. Very clear. If you want to have anything to say to nourish the church, you're going to have to be nourished yourself. If you want to be healthy, then eat the right things, avoid the wrong things physically and particularly spiritually. A good servant of Jesus Christ is one who is disciplined into godliness, and if you want to be spiritually fit, they're going to have to work out spiritually. These things are very, very clear. Paul used some very, very uh, descriptive terms in order to help us understand them. And then Paul encourages Timothy with a commonly accepted and known axiom in verses 9 and 10, where we looked last week. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says this, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And the passage is written to Timothy in order for him to continue to be a faithful servant of the church, to encourage him that he's going to work out spiritually and that that work is not going to be forgotten and that the goal then is just to serve the God who is our fixed hope. 
But just like all the other passages here that concern the church and concern leadership and from the godliness of men who pray, we saw in chapter 2, to the standards of holiness and character and testimony required for those who oversee the church in chapter 3 and for deacons who serve the church in chapter 3 and the standards of faithfulness and pursuing godliness to success from God's perspective, there's always a much broader application. I think you see this. There's only one standard of holiness. There's only one standard of faithfulness. We're not talking about one standard for those who who guide the church and one standard for those who are in the church. There's only one standard for success from God's perspective. There's only one standard uh, for God to say, you are a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Just one. Now, Timothy has to be an example. Those who lead the church have to be an example, but there's just one, and that example is the one everyone aspires to, anyone working for the kingdom. All of us are to train hard so we can labor and strive, so we can be informed and conformed to the will of God, so we can be godly, so that it profits for time and eternity. You work for the kingdom of God on whom you have set your hope. I work for the kingdom of God on whom I have set my hope. And we're motivated out of love for our Redeemer, and we're motivated by knowing that we will stand before Him and receive from His hand that reward which is commensurate with what we have done in this body, whether good or useless. We are motivated because we, uh, we may have built with wood, hay, and stubble instead of gold, silver, and costly stones, so we impact the kingdom in that judgment by laboring hard. And we are motivated to work out Uh, and be spiritually fit because the work has eternal consequences in that the world is lost and every believer has been commissioned to take the saving gospel to them. So there's just some very much practical applications to the things that Paul has laid out for those who serve the church and for everyone else. And and we're waiting for the time when the Lord is going to make everything we've done clear and how it all washed out in light of the the eternal. And we're not looking for human praise. We're not waiting for somebody to pat her on our back. We're, We're waiting for God's eternal reward. And in all of that, in all that we believe, and in all that we do, we believe it, and we do it, why? In the sure hope of an eternally living God who shall someday reward those who faithfully serve, and someday bring into eternity, and that light, the fruit of that service. And then the last part of verse 10 was where we finished up last time. We clarified what the scripture says. It's uh, not universal Christian salvation, which is very, very popular today. A number of books have come out very recently saying that that's what it is. The Savior of all men, especially of believers. And what we did was, that's what the Scriptures say. Now, what does it mean by what it says? Well, the saving function of God, apart from salvation from sins, is delivering and, and preserving and sustaining. And God has always done that for all men everywhere. We compared Scripture with Scripture. We looked at this word save and what it means in all these different places But it's even more true for the redeemed for whom this never ends, this preserving and delivering and sustaining, and to which all the other attributes of God and all the other work of God amongst the sons of men have pointed to. And how that applies to us then is he's delivered us and he will deliver us, right? He delivers us faithfully every day from the difficult times that are around us, and someday he will forever deliver us. And this is a rich reason to praise God. It's a reason to lift up holy hands and tell Him who He is and His nature and and give Him glory. He's the Savior, He's provider and sustainer of all men, but especially of us, the redeemed, in the most complete sense. And you can say that to an unredeemed world. You know what? The Lord has provided everything you have. There's nothing that you have that He hasn't given you in His goodness. And now He requires you to, to repent and believe. So we have that salvation, of course, that all the other things pointed to. So in the very fullest sense of salvation, the redeemed have that, but all men have it. So that's the understanding there. Eternal deliverance, preserving, sustaining, belong to the redeemed, but everyone gets that to some extent. Now, and now that Paul's been carried along to remind Timothy of all of that, and the motivation needed to really survive the ministry of the gospel, he continues to prompt him to godliness and to success from God's perspective. So he says this, look at verse 11 now with me. Prescribe and teach these things, verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And as I read that, I'm reminded of verse 6 that we saw not that long ago. He told Timothy, in pointing out these things to the brethren, mark this, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So these are very, very similar passages. In the very real sense, as you prescribe and teach, and that no one look down on your youthfulness because you're an example, in a very real sense, because you point out these things that are wrong to the brethren and straighten them out in these things, you'll be a good servant of Jesus. 
So if Timothy is to have success then from God's perspective, if Jesus is to be able to say, you're a good servant of mine, and, and you know, those are the words I long to hear after a lifetime of ministry. I certainly don't want to go through 30 plus years of ministry and not have that be the final. And I think that's the same thing for you, right? No doubt. The one thing you want to hear as well, then we can know from our chapter that that qualification and those qualifications rather are not subjective. They're not subjective. You don't get to define what it looks like to be successful from God's perspective. We don't get to define what it looks like to be a good servant of Jesus. He's laid it out very, very clearly for us and in many places, but certainly in these, these uh, pastoral epistles. Now, just as a footnote and really as a, some kind of a transition and, and a little transparency on my part, the transition to a new pastorate is difficult, and that's the understatement of the year. Even when the congregation has given you a solid call and you sense that that call is from the Lord and you can apply that to missions too. You know, transitioning to missions is difficult even when you know that this is where you're supposed to be and the mission organization of the church has sent you, it's difficult. And when you're young, the beginning in a new pastor is especially difficult. And that insecure feeling is almost universal. You don't think that you can do it. You're unsure you can. Uh, standing in front of a sea of pleasantly unreadable faces, you don't know. You wonder what they're like, and you wonder where, you wonder where the landmines are, because you know they're out there. Because if we didn't have difficulty in the church, we wouldn't have to have so many books in the Bible written about the church, right? And you, you ask questions about yourself. Are they going to accept you? You know, are you going to click together? You know, will your approach to the Word of God help them to grow? Will you be able to lead them? And certainly early in the pastorate, early in the mission, it's uh, Proverbs 29, 25, the first half is certainly prevalent to everyone. The fear of man brings a what? Snare. Always. Always the fear of man brings a snare, particularly in the ministry. If you're worried about what people are going to think, you're not going to do what you're supposed to do. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. So this helps us understand Timothy a little bit as we lay some foundation as we move into verse 11. He's new to this church in Ephesus. And Paul has left him in charge to set things right. And even the first four chapters, we know that there was a lot going wrong. And so it's not, an, uh, it's not a small thing that Paul has brought Timothy into. And although uh, he was appointed by the Apostle Paul, once Paul left, his position probably felt much less secure than many a new pastor. Uh, the Ephesian church was troubled by false teachers, uh, some of them whom were actually in leadership. Uh, there was no congregation call that had been extended to Timothy. Rather, the Apostle Paul kind of picked him up and dropped him off like a player from a double-A ball club being dropped into the major leagues in the middle of a troubled season. I mean, it's just like, do something. Make something happen. And so, there's really no indication that anyone in Ephesus had asked for him to come, much less appointed him or elected him to leadership. And as we pointed out from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, mark it, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia... Mark this, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So what had happened was Timothy had probably expressed his desire to what? Ghost, right? He's out of there. Timothy was timid by nature, certainly in part because he was young. Remember, Paul had to tell the Corinthian church about Timothy, and we looked at this quite extensively a number of years ago. He says, now if Timothy comes to you, he's talking to the church in Corinth, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Now I mark that for you because, first of all, that's an indictment on the Corinthian church. Should he ever have been afraid when he came there? Should that be the, the sense that uh, a minister should feel from a church to be afraid? No, but Paul had to say, make sure he's not, for he's doing the Lord's work as I also am. And then he says this, let no one despise him. Again, an indictment on the Corinthian church that he may be despised in that he's doing the ministry, but does that happen? It does. And so, let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. So, we see this, this trend, that there's some fear, trepidation. We, t we see the trend in the church to be less than hospitable. Later on, we're going to see Paul nudge Timothy a little bit. 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit, of, a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. And I think you can step back and say, that's easy to say when you're older, and hard to avoid if you're younger. And some in the church are quick to criticize, and so you can imagine Timothy in this scenario, and ungodly people may say, you know, who is this new kid? 
And who gave him the right to order the affairs of the church? This is very, very common in the church, right? I mean, we've been here a lot longer than he has. We were here when Paul planted this church. So who's this guy? And so this is the reality of leading the church now. So you can imagine it much more even than, and for Timothy in this situation and scenario we've pointed out. So it's not a stretch to think that Timothy woke up in the middle of the night thinking, what, what am I doing here? Please help me. And you know, Paul had been there. And we looked at, at uh, when in, in Acts chapter 18, verse 9, when Paul first came to Corinth, the Lord came to Paul by night and said, do not be afraid any longer, which implies what? That he's terrified. He's very worried about what's going on. He started in the synagogue. He got kicked out because everybody got mad at him. So he moved to the house next door and he led the, the leader of the synagogue to faith and then started building the church. So there's a lot of hostile people around and he says, go on speaking and don't be silent for I'm with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. So we get the sense that there was some concern there on Paul's part. And in the night watches and some lost sleep and worry about the course the ministry may take is still the reality of ministry now and it's the reality of ministry then. And then after leaving Corinth and we just saw just a second ago uh, when he says, I'm going to depart to Macedonia. And we see in First, Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, for even when we came to Macedonia, Paul talks about his departure from Timothy after he leaves in there and says, listen, you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to, don't let, you know, don't make him feel bad. So he says this, he says, uh, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. So it really didn't matter the location, did it? It just mattered that he was in the leadership of the church, and so that automatically attracted some difficulty. And that's still true of the ministry. And there are certainly some breaks from time to time and some joyous times and, and uh, some, a lot of fun, but this is what it looks like. Hard work, little rest, and you worry. That pretty much sums it up. And then like Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, apart from such external things. So here, Paul's saying, listen, the ministry's been hard. He didn't have a lot of the stuff that he needed, and he struggled, and then had some people who were attacking him. And then he says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. So that's a whole nother thing, right? Among, even in the hardship, he said that he had to endure the travel and all those kinds of things. He says, who is weak without my being weak and who's led into sin without my intense concern? Conflicts with people who are responsible for leading and they don't want to be led. Concern for those who are weak in the faith, that's always part of what's weighing on your mind. You're worried about the things they're going to have to go through and they might not do well. And then concern for those who are walking in sinfulness and how you're going to go about confronting those things. Those, those will always intrude on the night watches. Fears within about all of that. So Paul is giving Timothy some encouragement, but it's not because he hasn't been there himself. And anyone who's faithfully ministered in the church has been there and will be there again. And so Paul addresses Timothy in a very personal and very intimate way in these final thoughts of chapter 4. And he urges Timothy to do this. Look at verse 11 now. Prescribe and teach these things. Now, prescribe is from the compound verb, perangelo, present, active, imperative. And the sense there is, this, this voice, tense, tense voice and mood is, is almost always translated command. In fact, 31 times in the New Testament, it's translated command, and the, another 20 times it's translated charge. So it's very strong language. So that idea here of prescribe is very strong, and this is in this in, in the imperative. So this is a, a command for Timothy to command the things I've, tell, I've told you. And then this word teach is the verb didasco. Again, present active imperative. So you're going to command and you're going to teach. So you're going to discharge the office of a teacher. You're going to conduct oneself as a teacher, impart instruction. You're going to pass on these things that I've given to you. In other words, this is what you're to tell them, no exceptions. And you have the authority to command them and you have the authority to charge them. And you do this in a teaching environment. That sums up what goes on in the pulpit. And unfortunately, not what goes on in a lot of places. A lot of suggestions, a lot of sermonettes, a lot of maybe you should do this, and here's five steps for a good family, and whatever. And you're not using the Word of God, and there's no authority there, and so nobody's benefiting, see. I don't have any authority, except when the Word of God says, this is what you're to do, and I'm supposed to say, this is what you're to do. And I can't wash that down, and I can't water that out, and I can't make that softer for you. If it's in a command form, then I deliver it to you that way, otherwise I'm an unfaithful teacher and not a good servant of Jesus, and it's the same for you. And so again, you're discharging this office, and in particular here, you're going to prescribe and teach in opposition to the false teachers. 
So just going to come, Paul's saying, listen, you're going to have to get right up in direct opposition to those who are teaching false things. And this, in, in this particular case, asceticism and then other things taught by demons. So in our context, that's what it includes. But instruct the church as to the proper diet and the discipline in the word so necessary for godliness. And that was, that was principle number one. And success from God's perspective, specifically, take the clear instruction from the word and command it and teach it. That's success from God's perspective. No matter how it's received, no matter what happens when they get it, whether they obey it or they throw it away or whatever, that's on them. This is what you're supposed to do. No matter how you feel about yourself, I think we saw that already, no matter whether you feel intimidated or not, no matter who opposes you, whether you feel like it or not, doing this faithfully is success from God's perspective. And so here's this old apostle who's been through it already, and he says to this young charge, this is, have to, this is, this is, this is what you have to do. This is classic wisdom then for everyone. Anybody who desires to have success from God's perspective as you're leading the church, you have to do it with authority. Now, as we move on to this next one, you've probably uh, heard before that um, personality is what you are in the light, right, where everybody can see, and character is what you are in the dark where no one can see. And character is the issue of ministry, isn't it? I mean, I think if we've seen anything as we started in chapter one and worked all the way here, everything has to do with character. That's what you are before God. As we got to chapter three, both deacons and elders, it all had to do with character, See, people evaluate those who lead the church on a whole different set of standards, and none of them are biblical. None of them wash out. Everything has to do with character. Ministry springs out of character. Ministry springs out of testimony. It's what you are before God. It's the holding and proclaiming of truth out of a godly life. That's the essential thing, and that's the next thing we're going to see. Now look at verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourself as an example to those who believe. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 19, he talks about holding the faith in a good conscience. Do you remember that? It just means that the things that you're doing that relate to the faith that you have in Christ is not conflicting with a well-informed conscience. In other words, you're not allowing things in your life where your conscience is saying, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this. It says, very, very simple, hold your faith as a good conscience. A conscience that doesn't accuse one of sin. Then we get to chapter 2 and verse 8. Men should be lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So if those things mark the life of the individual, then they can't pray in the church. They can't come in and lead the church to worship the Lord in prayer. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 reminds Timothy that an overseer does a good work, but in order to do that work, God requires of a man that he be what? Blameless. It all has to do with character. It doesn't have to do with status. It doesn't have to do with what your job is. It doesn't have to do with how the world thinks about you. This has to do about character. What goes on in the church has to do about testimony. And in chapter 3, verse 10, we see that a deacon is also to be blameless. If he's going to discharge the work of service, in order to do that, he has to be blameless. It doesn't matter if he's a powerful guy. It doesn't matter if he gives a lot. Those things are irrelevant. It has to do with character. Chapter 6, verse 11, we're going to see that the man of God is to flee sin and follow righteousness, godliness, love, faith, patience, and meekness. And we're going to see in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, he's, he's to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 22, he's to run from youthful lust and pursue righteousness and call on God out of a pure heart. And, and then in chapter 3, verse 17, the man of God is to be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And so these are just, everything has to do with character, everything has to do with testimony, everything has to do with a relationship to God in order to be qualified to lead the church. So throughout all the pastoral epistles, the intent of Paul is to lay the responsibility on the servant of God at the level of spiritual character because that's where everything really takes place. All ministry activity is flowing out of character. And to the extent that the character is flawed, ministry will be inhibited, you see? So it's a constant battle with those who lead the church. This standard of godliness is for everyone, but those who lead the church, it's a constant battle to bring yourself into subjection to those things. It's a good work he desires to do, and he desires to do, bring himself up under those requirements so that he can discharge this work. So let's then start with the end of the verse and make our way back and this is really how the Greek expresses it in the Greek New Testament. Show yourself an example of those who believe, and then it gives all those examples. So let's just start there. 
The example, that word is the, is the noun tupos. And this is an interesting word. It really is the word mark. It's the word form or stamp. In fact, you'd be surprised to know that the same word tupos, Thomas, when he's talking about Jesus, unless I see the mark of the nails, that's our word tupos. Unless I see the mark of the nails, I'll know wise believe it's Christ. See, that's the same word. So it's a stamp. It's a blow caused by striking something. That's the essence of it. Paul says to Timothy, show you've been stamped, show you've been marked in the image of godliness. Or better yet, show the mark of godliness on you. That's the idea. And that's principle number two. When, uh, If you ask, what is success from God's perspective? Then it's when your character is marked by godliness, just obviously. Now, let's, let's look, at, um, look at the beginning of verse 12 and, and see what he says. So, he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. There's our first step right there. And we'll have to, we'll have to fill in those things, okay? Because Paul doesn't say what looking down on youthfulness would entail. But I think we can figure it out, right? And, and, and certainly, I don't want you to think that this is just associated with youthfulness because we know lots of old people who have these flaws, okay? And automatically, that if you're youthful, you are immature. None of these things are true. Just in general... I think if you're thinking about youthfulness, or a better word, immaturity, it would be careless speech if we kind of align it with the things we're going to talk about, right? You're not really concerned about what people think about what you say. And, and reckless conduct. I mean, you think you're bulletproof, and I mean, everybody does when you're young, and you kind of do things that are reckless and, and uh, self-centeredness. I mean, that's not isolated to, to immaturity and to youth, certainly. Um, wavering commitment, you're not really sure where you're going to fall and all these things that your parents believe, you know, lustful thoughts, certainly there, all those kinds of things, because, you know, of course, these things are not isolated only to the young people by any means, nor are young people automatically like this. Paul is in essence saying, he's in essence saying, these things can cause people to conclude that you're not mature enough to lead. If you're acting like an immature person, it's likely they're going to say you're not worthy of following. So how are you going to turn that around? That's the question. If you're young, and and remember, Timothy's in his 30s, so don't think 18. Think 30s. Timothy's in his 30s, and Paul's saying, listen, don't let them look down on youthfulness. Don't do things that would make them think that you're immature or not worthy to follow. Prove them all wrong about associating immaturity with a young age. And so just to break that down, you know, again, maturity isn't self-defined any more than being godly is self-defined or being a good servant of Jesus Christ is self-defined. And there are really five things in this passage that define for us what it looks like to be marked or stamped with godliness. And this is going to be a reoccurring theme, as I just showed you, just as a sample earlier, throughout these uh, pastoral epistles. What it looks like to be godly, what what success from God's perspective is going to look like, what faithfulness in the ministry is going to take on. And so these are much the same thing. And again, just one standard of godliness. We're going to see five things here, uh, and not one for the elder and then one for those who attend. It's the same for everybody. And so he's going to use this. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather, he says, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Stop right there. Now, let's look at the first one, speech. Show people what self-controlled tongue looks like. Show people. If you're going to have a mark of godliness on you in your speech, show them what a self-controlled tongue looks like. This is so hard, isn't it? Paul lists this first for Timothy and, of course, for all of us. And, of course, Proverbs has a lot to say about this. And and if you read through Proverbs yearly, you'll know Proverbs 10-19, when words are many, sin is not absent. So I would just say this to you. If your vocation is speaking then you already have a difficulty, don't you? You're going to have a difficulty because when multiplied words are there, sin is not far away and you have to keep track of your tongue, don't you? Proverbs 18, 13, he who answers before listening, that's his folly and his shame, but never comes into play more than when you're in counseling. You got to hear the whole thing, okay? You can't answer before you understand the whole thing. That's folly. The tongue can speak folly if you're not careful. Proverbs 15, 14, the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil, Proverbs 15, 28. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting, Proverbs 10, 32. He who guards his lips guards his life, Proverbs 13, 3. 
And we looked at this just a number of weeks ago, but this is the whole intent of James chapter 3, verse 1, isn't it? Which we looked at. Not, let not many of you become teachers. This is precisely the thing we're talking about here. We're not talking about just general teaching, you know, in, in elementary school or high school or college. It has to do with teaching the church. Let not many of you become teachers. Let not many of you be proclaiming what Paul said to proclaim. Why? Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. God is listening and watching everything that's said and done inside the pulpit. This is a specific warning to those who would teach the church. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's the perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Then it goes on. It talks about the tongue and how it's almost impossible. to. We can tame every animal. We can put bridles on animals, but we can't tame the tongue, see? So there's no perfect men, are there? And I told you that just really transparently a number of months ago, that you've got to struggle with that all the time. You're always reining your tongue in. You're always making sure. And I pray before I come out here, Lord, these things that you're, you've given me to teach, help me to teach them with the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, given in the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't want to wander off in any place that you don't want me to, so keep me from those things. That's my desire. I don't want to be accountable, accountable in strict judgment because I kept wandering off to what I wanted to talk about. And they're no perfect men, but the goal is to be an example in speech, which requires a constant monitoring of what comes out of the mouth. And that's going to be require, it require you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. There's no way you're going to transform your speech unless your mind begins to be renewed, because all of that is being generated from the flesh, isn't it? And that's the whole point of Jesus' uh, teaching in Luke 6, 45. The good man out of the good treasure in his heart brings forth that which is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth that which is evil, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Nothing reveals the character of a person more than the things that are said. So if you're unsure whether or not you're being spirit-controlled on a regular basis, just go back over your last week and think about the things that you said. And it could be self-talk, not just audible for someone else. Because that really reveals where the heart is. That's the difficulty of the tongue, see? So Paul starts there with Timothy. He says, listen, in speech, be stamped with godliness. It's just a very simple way to say, hey, there's a lot of reigning in that probably has to go on. Now, second one. Let's look at it. So first one is speech. Second one is conduct. This is the day-to-day manner of life, day in and day out. That's what it's talking about. Nothing special, nothing like you set up for people to think that you were godly. This just has to do with the humdrum existence of going to the gas station, to the groceries line, a soccer game, washing the car, doing the things around the house. This is just how you live, okay? First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it uses the, our same word. It says, keep your, this is our word, behavior. For Timothy 4, it calls it conduct. Here it's behavior, same exact word, excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is not surprising to us, is it? Because if we got in chapter 3, we saw that those who lead the church as an elder have to have good conduct among those who watch in the community in order to be qualified. Here's the thing. As we look at 1 Peter 2.12, you're going to be slandered. You're going to be gossiped about, whispered about. It goes with the territory if you're a believer and you walk with the Lord, not in some kind of pious, holier-than-thou way, but just faithfully you want to do your life like the Lord wants you to do it, you're going to be criticized. But you keep your conduct, you keep your behavior excellent. You get stamped by godliness in your behavior. And so there's some questions you're going to have to ask if you want to know if that's the case. What are they? What is your style of life? And I'm not judging anybody, and I'm not saying this in order to bring you, you know, if I looked at you just now, don't think I was looking at you for some reason, okay? I don't know anything about you. Where do you spend your time? You know, um, where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your energy? These are the questions. If you want to have a conduct that's stamped by godliness, then these are the questions you have to ask. Because I know you can see like I can, the lifestyle of people around us in the world today is so absolutely incompatible with everything that's biblical. You have unsafe friends as I do. They live their life like they want to live. I mean, I see families fall apart all the time because people in the house want to, they all want to work so they can buy bigger houses and bigger cars and be upwardly mobile. And then when they have a little bit of spare time, you know, their social life has to include drinking. 
right? Has to include drinking, even though biblically we're scripturally told to be wineless. That's the standard of godliness. It's still in there. And then apart from that, the evidence of the destruction that's exacted by that habit over and over again is so well documented, apart from the commands. This is the, the free world, the, the unredeemed world. This is how they spend their time. And, and then when they have free time, they're down working on the physical and the body beautiful. And they want to make sure that they present themselves and they hold on to this life. And they want to make sure they put off getting old. And, and instead of working on the spirit and on the soul, on the family, on the children. See, that's how the world spends their life. So we, obviously, we can't be spending our life that way and expect the stamp of godliness on conduct, right? That's just so obvious. But whatever it is that we do... Do as those who are redeemed, and how we go about our day has to be different. It should be an example that's stamped then by godliness in scriptural perspectives. How does our life line up? And it's not, it's not legalism. It's not you can't do this and you can't do that. It's just in general, what's the pattern of your life? Real life then in that way is a success from God's perspective. Now, number three, love. Love. And that's the Greek word we're very familiar with, agape. It's the noun that shows up in verb form in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the one people love for weddings and all that kind of stuff. And it says love is patient, love is kind. But love is a noun, but it works its way out as a verb. Agape does kind things. Agape is patient. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. We go back into conduct, don't we? We don't conduct ourselves in such a way and, and say that we love and do it in such a way that's worldly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's not, it's not a history lesson every time somebody does something to you. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth, and it bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. That's, that's agape. Success from God's perspective is living life this way. In John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. That's the essence, beloved, of ministry. You just lay down your life for your friends. That's it. And it's no sacrifice. Why? Because you understand the goal is eternal. And we're right back to chapter 10, aren't we? And we serve a God who is our sure hope and the Savior of all men. There's nothing lost there by giving your life away because there's a sure hope of reward. And again, I'm just going to be transparent with you. I'm going to be 60 this year. And that's really hard for me to comprehend. And you can chuckle if you want, but you are on your way, okay? I'm going to be 60 this year. And it's hard for me to comprehend, not because I can't do the math or look in the mirror, okay? But because sometimes I wonder where my life went. It all seemed to go by so quickly. But Laura, who is my rock, reminds me that we just gave it away. That's what we did. We gave it away to the church, and we still are, and to our children, and now to our grandchildren. And so it's more real to me, I think, this year, although I don't feel any differently, that I really do have a living hope that the Lord hasn't forgotten any of that, that he told me to give my life away and that in doing it, I have knowledge that it wasn't wasted. Did you know if you're a believer and you give your life away in love for the ministry over the long haul, you never have to worry about whether you accomplished something that was worth it? Did you know that? You never have to worry about whether you spent your life like you should when you're just giving your life away for ministry all the time. Now, the world, on the other hand, they're always looking for meaning, aren't they? They're always looking for something that'll somehow indicate that their life wasn't wasted, but you never have to worry about that if you just do it like this, see? Just give your life away in love. And I know that um, I didn't do it perfectly. I made tons of mistakes. But beloved, a ministry that's stamped as an example is to love God's people to the point where you just give away all your energy and your time for the purpose of communicating the things the Lord wants them to know and to strengthen and build up your children in those things first because 
You can't serve the church if your children aren't godly, and they won't be godly unless you sacrifice to form them up that way. And you certainly don't want to see at the end of your life them walking with the world. That's a living death. And so you're going to have to pour yourself in, and you're going to have to be sacrificial in a way that you never imagined. You know, it's, it's funny, and you guys know this if you have children, you never realize how super selfish you are until you have your first child. And as you multiply children out, you realize just how self-centered you've been your whole life, and you just realize how much sacrifice it's going to take. And, and, but this is worth it, right? If you pour yourself out in love that way, and you see another generation loving Jesus and sharing the gospel, you never have to worry that you wasted your life. And, and after you, you start forming up your children, it's communicating to the world uh, the things that will cause them to be changed forever, the gospel. And you're communicating to the church through the word of God to see them have the opportunity to be strengthened and built up, Ephesians 4 says, to this measure and standard and fullness of Christ. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? That, those things give life meaning. We're all passing through temporary. It's flower blooms and fades, right? But the word of the Lord stands forever. You're, you're only temporary. Teach me to number my days that I might present to you a heart of wisdom. That's wisdom. To expend your life in such a way that you've given it meaning because you've done exactly what the Lord says and you serve the Savior of all men and you have a sure hope, see? A living hope and a sure reward and the gains that you take with you. God so loved that he gave. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. See, and anything less than that isn't love, okay? There are givers, and there are takers in this world, and true people who love are the givers, not the takers. And ministry is all about giving and giving and giving and meeting needs and doing it over and over again, and that's what it means to have success from God's perspective, just discharging it over and over your whole entire life as you do the things the Lord's given you to do and provide for the needs of your family. You don't lose track of the things that are most important because these are the things that will give life meaning to you. Someday your kids won't need you. Someday they'll move out and they'll have their own home and they'll be away from you and they'll be doing their own things and you'll be extended family. Did you know that? Someday you're just going to be extended family. You're not the main deal. But if you raised a godly child, you raised godly children and they grow up to love the Lord and their children grow up to know the Lord, you didn't waste your life. You did precisely what you should have done. You're to make disciples and you start first of all in your own home and then you move out on into the world. These are things that make life worth it. These are things that God thinks is great. This is good servants of Jesus. Here's the next one, number four, faith. Now, when we see that one, first thing we think of, like when we think of salvation, we think of salvation from sins. When we think of faith, we think that this generally refers to, you know, the, the entirety of trust on the personality of God in Christ, this absolute unwavering conviction and confidence in his saving power and his wisdom and his goodness. I mean, that, that kind of faith, we understand that, right? But I don't think this is what Paul is talking about with Timothy, because Timothy was established. Otherwise, Paul never would have dropped him in the middle of this mess. So he's not saying faith like faith in Christ. That's certainly part of that stamp, and that has to be clear that there's this unwavering relationship through faith and repentance to the Lord who made you. But I think here it, it, it's probably better translated faithfulness, the idea of trustworthiness or loyalty, dependability, those kinds of things, unswerving commitment, consistency. It seems to be the main emphasis here. And I say that, and you see this in a minute, because that seems to be the general trend as he talks about Timothy and he talks about himself as it, re it was, uh, relates to faith. The idea is very consistent. Timothy, be faithful, be loyal, be trustworthy, be believable. You know, in the ministry, you're not in and out and in, hit and miss, you know, up and down, back and forth, unreliable. That's something that goes with youthfulness, or that's something rather that goes with immaturity, being unreliable. Instead, be solid, be unmoving, be unswerving. I think the idea here at 1 Corinthians 4.1 gives us the idea. As Paul talks about himself, he says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found, this is our word in adjective form, what? Trustworthy. That's the idea. Success from God's perspective, trustworthiness. We're going to see later in 2 Timothy 4.2. Paul will reiterate uh, this to Timothy. He's going to say in, in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, 
be ready. That's, that's kind of a parallel term to what we saw about faithful. That's a word for standing up and being present. Be accounted for. Be ready. In season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Whether you feel like it, whether you don't feel like it. Whether they're receptive to it, whether they're not receptive to it. Be there, be present, be faithful, be loyal, be trustworthy. Hang in there for the long term, people, unswervingly. Serve Christ through all the years of your life. Listen, that's the faithfulness Paul is calling Timothy to. Quiet the naysayers. Just quiet them. You know how you can quiet the naysayers? Outlast them. It's happened to me over and over again. Just outlast the naysayers. Outlove the naysayers. Outteach the naysayers. Just be faithful. They're going to criticize you. You're going to have criticism. We just saw it, right? But in the end, when everything's revealed, they'll have to say, hey, he was faithful. Regardless of what they said during the time. Just outlast them. So important. Paul had that reputation. In fact, he surrounded himself with people like that. He produced people like that in his life. Remember, Epaphras, Colossians 1.7, describes him. Faithful minister of Christ. Colossians 4.7, another one of his friends, Tychicus, a faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. Colossians 4.9, Onesimus, faithful and beloved brother. Same adjectives describing them. Same ones. It's why? Because that's what matters. Tychicus, great speaker, wonderful orator. No. Epaphras, really big giver, helped us do a building program. No. And then I love this, Colossians 4.17. Not only was he interested in recognizing those who were faithful, he says to Archippus, actually he tells them in, Coloss- in the book of Colossians, tell Archippus what? Heed the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So it's the other side, right? The one side says, these guys are all faithful. Make sure you say hi to them. And tell Archippus, get busy. It's both sides, right? Paul points out the faithful ones, encourages the ones that are less so. Be doing the things that matter, see? And that's just the key, consistency, faithfulness to the things of God. And then number five, purity. And this is it, we're wrapping up. Hagnia, that's the noun, hagnia. It really has to do with, um, that's the stamp of godliness that just excludes all impurity. It's all kinds of impurity. It's the idea of verse seven, have nothing to do with worldliness and untruth. Just exclude it from your life, whether it's in your mind or in your actions, see? Constantly at war with the desires of the flesh, like you're constantly at war with a loose tongue that says things that don't please the Lord. Constantly at war with the desire of the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he says it this way. He says, among them we too also formerly lived, mark this, in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It takes in both things, see. This is what's being an example of purity looks like. At war with the lust of the flesh, at war with the desires of the flesh and of the mind that don't please the Lord. That's going to be something you're reigning in all the time. Untruth plus time will always reveal itself. Ungodliness plus time are going to reveal itself. Immorality plus time, it's going to be exposed. Listen, rein it in. Put away those things that are, that are cause embarrassment, Paul says, and shame. This is what that's going to look like. You can't just kind of coast along. The world's insidious. It has plenty of things that's going to entice you. And, and, and Satan and demons know precisely, although they're not too concerned about us individually until we really want to walk with the Lord. They know precisely what to present in the culture, though, to draw you in. And you've got to be smart enough. You've got the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom, be in the Word, you're going to know. And this is success from God's perspective. And typically, that doesn't look anything like what most modern books on pastoral leadership and spiritual leadership indicate what success looks like. As I read those, I'm just thinking, it kind of like just, you just say, do what I did, and you'll be successful. Well, I'm sorry. You know, I, I appreciate the fact that you were successful from the world's eyes, but that has nothing to do with being successful in God's eyes, and being a faithful servant of Jesus is pretty much spelled out here. What's the character like? And I'm not saying that they've got bad character. I'm just saying we're just focusing on the wrong things. Marked in this example of godliness. As we wrap up, let me just say this. I don't know anything about Nicholas Hoffman. I don't know anything about him. Martin Luther spoke at his funeral. I don't know if he wrote a book. I couldn't find a thing that he wrote. 
I pastored a church in a town in Germany in the late 1400s and early 1500s and then went to be in glory and Martin Luther spoke at his funeral and said, what we preach, he lived. So I think it's safe to say that it appears in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, he was an example of those who believe. Would you agree? And nobody remembers the communist bureaucrat who ordered the book to be written to slander the character of Hudson Taylor. Nobody knows who that person is, and nobody knows who the writer was. They passed into oblivion. Critics of, of Hudson Taylor, listen, but we remember 1 Peter 2.12. Hudson Taylor kept his behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slandered him as an evildoer, they were because of his good deeds as they observed them, glorifying God in the day of the visitation. Right? And here's Timothy in the middle of pastoring a church who didn't call him and didn't want him and was full of false teachers who were already in leadership and looking down on him, was instructed by Paul to have confidence and command and teach these things that were so unpopular and let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. These things are what success from God's perspective looks like. That he and we may be good servants of Jesus Christ. And you know what? There's just one standard, beloved, and I say this all the time. I don't want you to think there's some unachievable standard. Because think about this. Do you really think God wants anything less from his church, godly speech and conduct and love and faith and purity than he does from those who lead the church? Does he want a less standard of all those things? That's not even realistic, is it? What's the same standard for everyone? And beloved, we're barely getting started. These things had to do with character. The next four verses have to do with the Word of God, and I want to make sure that you don't miss our time together as uh, we're encouraged along those lines. All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Let's bow. Father, we thank you today for the blessedness of being together with the saints. We're so, I'm so grateful that we have one heart and one mind. We desire so much the same things. We wish to aspire to these things and live this way. We want to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We want to walk in holiness. We want to walk in our conduct in such a way that it, it makes you look glorious. It makes the gospel look great. We work in our places of work. You tell us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we make the gospel look great. It's not that hard in a world that's searching for meaning and lost in, in the excesses of a culture uh, we can walk and shine as lights, not holier than thou, but some who know, like Paul told Timothy, some who've been there understand what it is to struggle and show what it means to come to faith. So, Father, I pray that you open up our ministries and whatever circle of influence that we have, it might be these kinds of people, examples of these things. And if we haven't been at this point, we repent of those things and we turn and we ask you to set us on a new course, bring our own will, our own desire, our impulses in line. Help us to seek your word out each day and begin to learn uh, new habits to change our minds and reform them. All these things, Lord, we ask in the name of Christ. It is for his glory and our desire to see him that we may be found faithful servants when he comes that push us this way, knowing that there is a reward, that there is a judgment. We know that there is uh, eternity at stake here. Help us to live our lives and give them away. And we never have to worry about whether what we did mattered. Pray this in the name of Christ, whom we love and long to see in all God's people's sin. Amen.